on the job with Francis Leach. It's on the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you in the season of the pigskin. That's right, we're in football final season here in Australia, late September. Uh, the AFL grand final was played last weekend. Well, this was recorded before the grand final. Let's not pretend it wasn't. So I don't know the result. So if your team won, congratulations. If not, I know your pain is a St Kilda fan. But this is a time to reflect on the phenomena of Aussie rules football, a sport that is uh, yeah, contained to the east coast and west coast of Australia predominantly, but has huge spectator support, a massive industry. The AFL just signing a $4.6 billion TV and rights deal. And it's a cultural phenomena where one third of Melbourne's population has a membership or has a connection with an AFL club. And that's not to mention the other major cities like Perth, Adelaide, and, and of course Tasmania, which is in the throes of trying to get its own football club in the AFL. That's a, another story altogether. So how did this happen? Well, may I proffer to you a theory that uh, I kind of like, which I read when I was uh, having a look around at the work of academic and historian Tony Ward from Melbourne University. Now, Professor Ward was writing a number of years ago about the connection between the phenomena of Australian rules football, which exploded into life in the late part of the 19th century in Melbourne, uh, at the back end of the gold rush, was probably the richest, wealthiest city in the world. And suddenly it had this mass spectator sport, which was blossoming, that was all its own. Now, in his work, Tony writes about the role of workers and unions, which made the success of Australian rules football possible. Yes, that's right. We're claiming it. The union movement helped create Aussie rules. Tony explains. Let's listen to my conversation with Tony Ward from Melbourne University, fellow in historical studies at Melbourne Uni, about the role of workers and unions in the creation of Australian rules football. This is On The Job with Francis Leach. So you wrote this article nearly a decade ago now, and it caught my eye during Grand Final Week, and it's about the reasons why Australian rules football in particular became a mass spectator sport of huge significance in a very short space of time. Let's go back to the 1850s. How did football evolve and where did it start? Because it's contested ground, isn't it, how Australian rules football, like a lot of sports, start? What I think you have to start from is the fact that there were all sorts of games around in the 1840s and 1850s, all played to different rules. We sometimes think of, uh, of football as coming from some of the, the public schools, the private schools in, in England. Yes, they were playing games, but there were also mass popular games being played at the same time. And in fact, if you look at the early 1850s in, in Melbourne, there are quite a few advertisements in the papers of, of pubs saying, we're going to have a, a game of football this afternoon. Anyone who wishes to turn up can join us. So it was very much a social phenomenon and it was not something that just happened on one day at one time. And there's not one creation story, is there? And, and sports like that because they, they love the mythology of a creation story of, of a heroic individual, a visionary that creates this sport that goes on to become a, a cultural phenomena well beyond their lifetime. And we're thinking of, you know, William Webb Ellis when it comes to rugby and Tom Wills when it comes to Australian football have emerged as the, the two great iconic figures 
who were supposed to have been central to the development of these sports that are now hugely popular and uh, important cultural uh, artefacts within the communities in which they exist. Yeah, well, I think uh, we think of something as significant as uh, as football now and the, the role it plays in society and in people's lives. And you think if it's that important, it must have had big beginnings. But uh, in, in the words of the... Uh, the famous song, from little things, big things grow. And uh, we're very much looking at, uh, at little things that started off these games. So let's talk about how it, the convergence of communities living in dense populations, the incredible wealth that Melbourne particularly enjoyed at the time of the gold rush of the 1850s and beyond, and how that all played into the development of a working class culture and I guess a critical mass of people who could actually go to sports events like this? Well, I think that is a a really important point and it's the the central point in my argument that the critical thing wasn't so much the game, it was the crowds coming along to the game and those, those crowds building. Now, if you have as I said, pub games from time to time, there's no organised league or anything like that, the rules can be very rough and ready. And in fact, there were a lot of different rules around. But once you have a a regular competition going, then you need to have codified rules and you need to have rules that people agree on. Now, I've had a look at some other games around the world in building this argument. And for example, in 1874, McGill University travelled to Boston to play Harvard University in football. And they played two games one loosely based on the rules of soccer, another one loosely based on the rules of rugby. So there was no codified gridiron there. They played different rules, different times. Now, what happened in um, a lot of places is once they started having codified competitions, they had international rules to draw on. Soccer rules have been developed in England. Rugby rules have been developed in England in the 1860s, early 1870s. And in the US, of course, gridiron rules were developed in the, in the 1880s. So a big difference in Melbourne, as you said, Melbourne was uh, very wealthy with the gold rushes in the 1850s and 1860s, is when people started looking at it, holding a competition, they didn't have these international codified rules to draw on. They had a variety of rules they could draw on and they took what they liked out of those rules and uh, and said, okay, this is our game. And this was a trial and error thing. I mean, you write in your article about uh, some clubs, the South Yarra Club playing, uh, the Melbourne Cricket Club playing, Carlton playing a game against the Waratahs of New South Wales, trying to find a middle ground between Melbourne and Sydney uh, in the 1880s to see if there was a hybrid game that might develop out of that. So these things were all trial and error, and sometimes they would agree on rules, sometimes they wouldn't. You even write about a couple of games where they couldn't compete against each other because they couldn't agree on the rules. <laughs> and and also the rules developed over time. I mean, the um, a, a famous story which is often referred to in the um, Aussie rules histories is a uh, a meeting at the Parade Pub in Melbourne in uh, 1858. And that was the first effort in Melbourne to codify rules that other clubs would abide by. And there were 10 simple rules. But those went through a lot of changes over the next 10, 15 years as the game developed. And one of the important influences there was that what the crowds liked. So it wasn't just that you needed rules because 
the crowds would come along to a competition. It was also the crowds would only come along if they liked how the game was developing. So there was a real interaction between these, not just someone saying, right, here's a bright idea for a game, and it went on from there. So this is where it gets interesting. So in Melbourne, back in 2009, 2010, one-third of the adult population attended Aussie Rules matches. So that's an indication of how popular it was. But we're talking about in the 1850s, uh, we had these bigger crowds turning up to these games. So in a way, the players quickly understood that they had to actually meet the needs or meet the aspirations of the fans who were coming along rather than it being, say, in New South Wales, where it was more exclusive, where the rugby union was set up basically as the boss's game or as a sort of a a higher class game where they didn't really want to attract a, a larger crowd from a wider demographic. They weren't interested in that. So the game pretty much became fairly static. But Australian rules football had a very different attitude. Very much so. And, in fact, a big part of that came out of the union struggles for the eight-hour day because once there was success in that, starting in the 1850s, people moved to eight-hour days, which was eight hours, six days a week. So it included work on Saturdays. But by the end of the 1860s, a lot of workplaces and a lot of unions were saying, look, let's work nine hours or eight and a half hours a day during the week so we can have Saturday afternoons off. And once Saturday afternoons became general that Saturday afternoons were off, then you have the basis there for sport as entertainment, if you like, so people could turn up and watch the games. So the call for the eight-hour day sort of began in the, you know, in the early part of the 19th century, and you write about the utopian socialist Robert Owen who, who had the cry for shorter working hours, and then the Chartist movement had that demand as well. But it really was in Melbourne, wasn't it, where the stonemasons – uh, you know, really did galvanise around being unionised and organising to actually move to a different level where the eight-hour day would be enshrined in legislation to protect workers' right to have a half-day off, a half-day holiday on Saturdays. Yes, that's right. Well, that, that wasn't part of the, the original demands. In the 1850s, it was just for eight hours a day. But it became, by, the, um, uh, by about a decade later, people were generally saying, OK, let's go with the, the half-day holiday on, uh, on Saturdays. And that freed people up, didn't it, to go to the football? Oh, very much so, yes. And, in fact, Melbourne was was a world leader in that, the union movement in Melbourne. And this was well before eight-hour days were anywhere else in the world. And a combination of that had the effect that Melbourne crowd sizes were huge by international standards for the early games. And in the article, you quote Charlie Lovett, who was a long-time uh, stalwart of the Footscray Football Club and its first captain in the 1870s, talking about uh, the struggle to get the eight-hour day and, you know, to, to make sure that workers had that opportunity. And it was very much front of mind that it was for that opportunity, for that leisure and, and for the passion of the game that they loved, which was going to the footy. Well, and that was the one of the original slogans for the eight-hours day was uh, eight hours work, eight hours rest eight hours leisure. And how do you think it still flows through to the attitude that Australians have to the game today, that that history of uh, of egalitarianism with the game, which comes from within the union movement ethos as well, that you've uh, pointed out in your article, in your writings about how women and men would go to games, people of different classes would attend games. It's still the case now, isn't it, that Australian football has a very much a, a, an ingrained egalitarian ethos, which it proudly protects as a consequence of its origins. Yes, very much so. And in fact, if you if you look at the, uh, the the high point was in the 1920s and 1930s, when in Melbourne 
um, 9% of the city's population would go to a footy game every weekend. Uh, it's not always the same 9%, but uh, that, that, that was huge by international standards. Um, no, nowhere else ever comes close. Um, and uh, one of the key differences was that women were a large part of the crowd, that so you, don't, you don't get that number of people turning up unless, uh, unless women are involved in it. So is it too cheeky for us unionists to claim that uh, unionism and uh, workers organising is a key component to the success and the phenomena and the cultural importance of Australian rules football? That's worth a go. <laughs> well, we're going to do that, that's for sure. I think we have done that. Look, Anthony, just to finish, when you look at football today, do you think it still retains those characteristics that it started out with in terms of its, its uh, egalitarian history? Um, I think it certainly in terms of the uh, the mass appeal and the mass mass involvement. Uh, yes, uh, I mean people people talk a bit about the um, how the amount of money coming into football and to other games has changed it, and obviously that's a, with the TV rights in particular that has had an influence on the game and it uh, it has become if you like a bit more more corporate. But uh, I remember a uh, a comment from a, a sportsman in the US who was asked about the amount of money that the stars were getting paid. And he said, look, I can't justify that. He said, but if you look at the amount of money in the sport, it either goes to the owners of the teams or it comes to the players. And I know who I'd prefer it to go to. And indeed, we would too. Look, Anthony, well, thank you for, for your writing. People can still read your article online. Remind them where they can find it. Well, so it's on the, uh, the conversation, uh, a website that's set up to try and popularise academic research make it more accessible, which I think is a, is a great idea. But if you, if you go to the conversation website.com.au and search for, for my name, you'll very quickly come across it. Thanks for telling us the story and thanks for being on the job. Thank you so much, Francis. Thank you for your interest. With Francis Leach, this is On The Job. Dr. Tony Ward there from Melbourne University. You can check out that particular bit of writing of his at The Conversation, which is a fantastic website where uh, academics get to publish works which are available to the wider public and and popularise their ideas. So go to theconversation.com and search Tony Ward's name and his writings are there and you can read that article from 2014. But I thought it was worth revisiting about how unions and workers in the eight-hour day freed up leisure time so people could go to the footy. And as we saw on the weekend, it's become an institution across Australia, Australian rules football, and you've got unions to thank for it. My name's Francis Leach. Thank you very much for listening again. As I always say, if you can give us a rating, of whichever platform you're using. Uh, Use your stars wisely and your reviews. It helps people find the information and the inspiration and gets us up the charts and, uh, you know, in the battle of the algorithms, it all helps. So please give us that review uh, and I'd be eternally grateful to you. And, of course, join your union, australianunions.org.au is where you go to do that. It's the best way to secure a decent working life, australianunions.org.au. And I will catch you on the next edition of On The Job. Bye for now. Hope you're kicking goals. 